forecast one to three inches. We got close to six or seven. Hello and welcome to the unofficial podcast of the Cincinnati Bengals, an hour of your life. My name is Kim. And my name is Steve. And while I feel very bad for the Buffalo Bills, I would be wrong if I said I wasn't happy that the Bengals won today. I'm happy for the Bengals. I am happy to. Yeah, they're just down in Cincinnati. They're they're less than an hour away. And, uh, you know, I'm so glad we were talking during the game that back in the day, Cincinnati kind of had a, like the Bengals kind of had a reputation as like, not necessarily the nicest guys. A lot of them were getting arrested. Yeah. But I feel like the team that we have now, we, <laughs> after the game, they like just plop down in the snow and we're making snow angels. And I feel like that is indicative of the kind of team. Like they're just overgrown children, but in a, the best way. Like they're just really cute and fun and I like them. So well, hopefully, hopefully they'll to go to the, the Super Bowl they this year. Well, Joey B's got it in the bag. Mm, um, right. But that they have nothing to do with what we're talking about today, nor does the snow, which is beautiful, by the way. Yeah. Like I said, they, we they were saying have, one to three inches and lo and behold, it turned five out five to seven at least. Yeah, I, I think I measured it at one point. We had six and it kept snowing mm. after that. And it's supposed to get some more tonight. Um. We should probably be more careful because, like, people are going to listen to this later on, and it's gonna we're going to date ourselves. But well, we right. went out to get our coffee this morning. We are not, or timeless. we went out to get coffee, and as we were coming back, there was a little hill and a curve. Oh yeah, I felt and, so bad. And, and there was a lady who was at the top of it. She maybe started down maybe four or five feet. Her wheels were aimed at the ditch, and she was just sitting there. And so she's we, a super nice lady too. She's, she's in our neighborhood and like, she's just really, really nice. Yeah. But it was, she, it was not, slick. It was slick. She had a front wheel drive car that she had, like was brand new to her. And so she was not familiar with it. It's the first time that she had driven in snow, maybe ever, or at least in a very long time. So we pulled up beside her, asked her if everything was okay, and she explained what was going on. So I drove down to the bottom of the hill, and I pulled in somebody's driveway down there. And I walked back up, and she said, what What should I do? I said, just, just go ahead, just scoot over. Scoot over. And she didn't. She had to get out and go around because of the, the center console. And then I, I tried to get in the car, and I banged my knees. I had to scoot Aww. the seat back. What she said, she's only like five feet tall. Oh, yeah. So I had to scoot the seat far. back. And I drove her down the hill and going back up the hill, I said, you know, it's so slick. I better just, I may as well just take her up to the stop sign <laughs> at the top of the hill. So I took her across the road because there's still a little bit of a grade right there at the stop sign. So I took her across the road and it would have been about a quarter mile walk. Now, mind you, it wasn't. It was super not cold. cold it, no. it was like 31, 32 degrees. It was. And I would have come and got you, but I didn't know what you were doing. You screened your calls because I tried to call you. I, because, but it was not your phone number. It was the lady's phone number. Anyway. Yeah. So, anyway, I started to walk back and didn't walk far. Actually, I just, I thought about walking back, got out of the car, and um, another neighbor drove by and stopped. And, you know, I, I, I kind of waved. He stopped. He 
drove me that quarter of a mile down the road to where Kim was so I could get in the car and drive back. So it was just so that kind of day. So the moral of the story, Steve did a good deed today and our neighborhood is awesome. We have a long show. I think it's going to, I, you don't think, you think it's going to be right at an hour. I think we might go over. It's You, you it's talk pretty, fast. I think we'll. I hope, I don't know. Um, But And I know I say this like all the time, but I'm actually really excited for this week's show. I, for once, came up with the topic. I feel like Steve is usually the one that comes up with the research topics. And I don't know where I came up with this topic, but it just kind of popped in my head one day. And I said, I want to research this. And so do you want to tell them what we're doing? Yeah, we're doing heists. Heists. I wish we had like a cool heist sound, but we don't. Um, so we did independent research. So I, I looked up some art heists. Kim did her own this time. I did my own research for once. It's been a long time since I've done my own, my own work. Won't be the last. It won't. Um, so I researched art heists and then you researched what bank heists or a bank heist. Well, I was going to do multiple bank heists, but I got onto this one and it just, there's a lot of twists and turns and I think it's going to take up the whole time. Okay. So I just did one. All right. Are you ready to get into it? Let's do it. All right. So let's first. Wait. Disclaimer. Robbing banks and stealing stuff is not right. right. Don't do it. Good. Okay. There, okay there's, there our, there's our disclaimer. All right. Let's start talking about Vincenzo Perugia. So we're doing an art heist first? We are doing an art heist first. Probably one of arguably the most famous art heist in history. So Vincenzo Perugia was once an employee at the Louvre in Paris. And we all know the Louvre, super famous art museum. Why, why is there an R in Louvre? I don't hear it. Looks um, like it should be Louvre. Because French. Okay. He was also an artist and he was a thief. On Monday, August 21st, 1911, Perugia entered the museum through an employee entrance at about seven in the morning. Um, now, most stories say that he hid in a storage closet on Sunday night, but he himself said later that that wasn't the case, that he came in at, at 7 a.m. Monday. And so this was after he was no longer employed there. So he got a smock, same white smock that the staff typically wore. And um, he basically went in the employee entrance with the, the like he finally, like he followed somebody into the employee entrance on Monday morning and nobody thought anything about it because he was dressed like everybody else. And um, when the salon where the Mona Lisa, so the salon is like the room where um, the art is kept. So when the salon that the Mona Lisa was in was empty, he literally just lifted the painting off of the four iron pegs that held it to the wall and took it to a nearby service staircase. So he took the Mona Lisa out of its protective frame. He wrapped that white smock that he wore. Um, he wrapped it around it. And then he just walked out the same door that he came in. Now, I'm I thinking say, the security wasn't well, the way it is. Yes and no. So here's the thing. He, I guarantee you cannot just walk the Mona. Well, no, not now. Because of this heist. But so... Um, so here's the thing, like he intended to just walk out the door where he had come in. But when he got there, it was locked and 
Perugio is actually trying to take apart the doorknob when a plumber just happened to come by and kind of, and just kind of assumed that he was another employee that I guess had like forgotten his key or whatever. So he opened the door and let the guy that stole the Mona Lisa out the door. Like I said, I don't think security was the same back then. Can you then. imagine if you were that plumber later on? You're like, oh no, what did I just do? So now before the theft, the Mona Lisa wasn't actually a very well-known painting. Um, so a little bit of background. It was created by the Italian artist Leonardo da Vinci in 1507, but it wasn't really critically acclaimed by the art world until the 1860s. And even then, it was just kind of a small group of French artists that really talked about how great it was. Back in 1911... It was 28 hours before anyone even noticed that it was gone. So, so it didn't have a lot of traffic in the Louvre back then. I, I read somewhere that on Monday when he stole the painting, that the Louvre was closed. So I, well, and, and here's the reason. Hold on. We're going to get into it. So um, at the time, well, hold on, back up. So it was actually, the theft was actually discovered by another artist at about noon on Tuesday. So it had been stolen on Monday, discovered at noon on Tuesday. This artist had come to paint a still life of the gallery in which the Mona Lisa hung. Now, at the time, the Louvre's paintings were in the process of being photographed for a project. And unfortunately, the cameras didn't work very well inside. So the pictures had to be taken to the roof to be photographed. So this artist that had come to paint the salon, um, he knew that that was going on. And so he asked a security guard, well, how much longer are the photographers going to have the Mona Lisa? And the guard kind of like blew him off at first, but apparently this guy was really insistent and really annoying and said, I can't paint this salon without the Mona Lisa in it. So the security guard finally went to go check with the photographers on the roof. And lo and behold, the photographers didn't have the painting. Mm. So then the security guard can you imagine? It's like you say, it's like you say sometimes he was probably puckering hard. <laughs> and, Good chance. And so they finally found the glass frame in a stairwell. And later that night, the museum announced the theft. And it was at that point that the Mona Lisa suddenly became famous as newspapers around the world put the story on their front pages. Now, there were a few things that detectives needed to consider. Things were starting to remember this is 1911. So things are starting to heat up between a pre-World War One France and Germany. So some people actually thought. So they thought the Germans stole it. They thought that the Kaiser had ordered the theft. Hmm. Um, other people thought that American millionaires were so interested in collecting French art that one of them had commissioned the theft. At one point, J.P. Morgan, who really loved art and was an avid art collector, was an actual suspect. In France... Did they take him in and question him? I think they actually did question really? him. In yeah. What was he doing in France? No, they. I don't think they took him to France, but like they had American detectives like question him and say, like, hey, do you know anything about this? Can you, can you give us any insight? And he was like, oh, I don't know what you're talking about. I wonder if they use Zoom or Teams. I don't know, but listen to this. This is crazy. So in France, a poet named Guillaume Apollinaire, and I'm probably butchering that, but he was arrested in September. So the, the painting was stolen in August. 
Um, he was arrested in September 1911 after police linked him to an earlier theft of two ancient statuettes, which had been lifted from the Louvre by his secretary. But wait, there's more. During Guillaume's interrogation, he implicated a close friend of his. I'm going to tell you a little bit of don't read don't read the notes. Don't I'm look not, at them. I've already skipped down to my spot. Okay, so I'm going to see if you can guess who this close friend is. He was a 29-year-old Spanish artist who had purchased the statuettes and used them as models in his paintings. And he was like a lead suspect in the theft of the Mona Lisa. Did he have one ear? No. He was Spanish. Oh, I thought he was Spanish. Pablo Picasso. Picasso was actually a main suspect in the theft of the Mona Lisa. Of course, he didn't take it. Um, And... Actually, the, the the reason they let them go was because there wasn't enough evidence to charge either of them with but theft. Did, was there any reason why they suspected him? Yeah, well, because his buddy, this Guillaume Apollinaire guy, was um, he had already stolen from the Louvre before, which we would think then after the Louvre had already been stolen from, like they would have tightened security, but I guess not. Um, he had stolen two statuettes and then Picasso was his buddy and Picasso used the stolen statuettes as uh, like models for some of his paintings. Hmm. So he was kind he was guilty by association. Like he associated with a known thief, but there wasn't enough evidence to charge either Guillaume Apollinaire or Pablo Picasso with the theft. Um, and actually, Perugia claimed to have stolen the painting as a matter of pride. So, some background. In 1799, there was this guy named Napoleon Bonaparte. You might have heard of him. He, Once or twice, I think, he, maybe. He moved up in the world from a military leader to a national leader when he became the first consul of France. Did he become an art uh, connoisseur? Uh, in a manner of speaking... He, after he became the first consul, he essentially, long story short, got in fights with everybody. During this period that actually started in about 1794, the French looted an unknown but undoubtedly large amount of art until the Congress of Vienna, which was basically established to fix Napoleon's mess, ordered them returned in 1815. But not everything was returned, and in fact, some art seems to have gotten lost for good. Now, the Mona Lisa was not one of those paintings that was taken by Napoleon. It was actually gifted to Francis I, the king of France, by da Vinci himself after it was painted. But apparently Perugia didn't know this, and he tried to, quote-unquote, return the painting to Italy. However, when I say return, I mean it with the biggest quotes possible because... After hiding Mona Lisa in a trunk in his apartment and, according to Perugia, quote, falling in love with the woman in the picture. Like he said, I would take it out of the trunk every night for two years and just gaze at her beauty. And I fell in love with her. Hmm. So we saw something like that on HBO one time. We did. Where people fall in love with like. Oh, yeah. Like with weird, like not weird, like, but like. car. No They want to marry their car. Or, yeah. 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 I think he did. That guy married his car. Um, yeah. yeah. It was. Yeah. Mm. Um, I forget what it was called. It was like my strange obsession or something like that. Um, but yeah, it was. They say it was almost like a reverse Stockholm syndrome where the captor falls in love with the thing that it is that he has taken. 
Um, and so he. Well, there had to be some motiva- motivation why he wanted that particular piece, I would think. I don't know. I think maybe, honestly, it was just a case of convenience because I read one place said that the the case that the Mona Lisa was kept in, he built. So it might have been just like he built the case that she was kept in so he knew how to access it because he built it. I think there's some stalking going on. I Maybe so. Um, but he, after, so he tried to quote unquote return the painting to Italy after two years. But when I say return, I mean he tried to sell it to a Florentine art dealer. Not... Give it to a museum. I guess so. He thought, well, maybe I'll make a, maybe I'll make a buck or two off this. So the dealer's name was Alfredo Jerry, and he said that Perugia admitted to him that he stole the painting, and he gave this spiel about his patriotic reasoning. Although he didn't tell him why are you selling it instead of giving it to a museum. Um, and so Jerry talked with a gallery director named Giovanni Poggi, and the two men uh, agreed to invite Perugia to Florence. Perugia, Perugia. Perugi, I think they asked and he agreed to keep the painting overnight for authentication before they agreed to his 500,000 lira asking price. Now, how much is 500,000 lira? You may ask. Well, I did the math for you in modern. The modern equivalent of 500,000 lira is only $8,277. Man, we should have bought that. Maybe like it's not a lot. He was not asking for millions of dollars. It was not actually a super high asking price. Well, um, it wasn't popular then, though, was it? I mean, you said. Um, I mean, it wasn't popular, no. But I, I mean, it, it was, was a still, da, it was a Da Vinci. It was a Da Vinci, and it was on display at one of the world's greatest art museums. So yeah, I with, I think with he very little security. Apparently, yeah. I think he could have gotten more than that. Anyway. Um, and especially at that point, it was famous because it got famous. There were like thousands and thousands of people after the painting was stolen. The Louvre did unprecedented amounts of traffic. People literally just came to see where the painting had been. Okay, so. So it we, did, it was famous. And this Remember, this is two years later. This is in 1913. So we, we were fortunate enough to. Go to the Louvre. Yes. And after walking through and seeing everything, we walked into the gallery where the Mona Lisa was hanging. And it's, honestly, it's... It, it's very I, I underwhelming. Say, it, it's very unimpressive. I mean, the piece itself, so, but it's small. It's, here, it's tiny. It is much smaller than I thought. But and, turn around. Uh, yeah, that's what I was going to say. I... Uh, it is. It was unbelievable. It's just hanging on like me. a little corner, like on a wall. No, I mean it's like in the center, and it's like on a column, and you can't. It's really hard to get close to it. I mean, there were mobs of people, but so from where I was standing, it was like poster size. Like it's not huge, but then when you turn as you're facing the Mona Lisa, if you turn directly around, right behind you is. This huge painting that covers like the entire wall, the entire wall. It's the wedding at Cana. And there's so much going on in this painting, like so many biblical stories and allegories. And the whole thing tells this really intricate. It's a beautiful painting. I spent maybe 30 seconds looking at the Mona Lisa and at least. Right. And I spent a good five to seven minutes just 
going through the wedding at Cana and just seeing everything. It was incredible. So if you go to the Louvre, I mean, the Mona Lisa is fine, but check out the wedding at Cana. It's way better. There's a lot of stuff to check out. I mean, yeah, it's a big, it's a big museum. There's a lot of really cool stuff, but uh, the wedding at Cana was by far my favorite part. Anyway, back to our story. Um, So they agreed. uh, They asked to keep the painting overnight. He agreed. Um, So the art the art dealer uh did contact an authenticator once the painting was verified he immediately contacted the police and the police arrived at the place where perugia was staying very shortly after he was arrested and he was charged but he had the court of public opinion on his side a lot of citizens actually bought his patriotism line so he was sentenced only to a year and 15 days of which he only served seven months Hmm. that's not very long. It and only made $8,000 off of it. He didn't make any money off of it. They didn't pay him because the oh. cops came to get him. Yeah. So the Mona Lisa uh, kind of went on tour for a little bit and then was returned to the Louvre and attracted about 120,000 visitors in the first two days after it was returned. It became the first iconic piece of art recognized by the masses. And today it gets 8 million visitors annually where it sits behind bulletproof glass in a climate controlled case. Yeah. So they've upped the security at the Louvre. A little bit. Now, yeah. as for Perugia. I think there were about 8 million people in there that day that we were there. <laughs> I think they know. Um, as for Perugia, he was sentenced on June 5th, 1914. World War One broke out on July 28th, and suddenly he is not big news anymore. Um, of course, Franz Ferdinand, Archduke of uh, Austria, was assassinated that day on July 28th. After Perugia was freed, after he did his, what, seven months, um, he joined the Italian army because he, he legit was a patriot, uh, and he served time again for two years as a POW in Austria-Hungary. Um, he was released at the end of the war and he got married. He had a daughter and he continued working as a carpenter and painter until he died in relative obscurity in 1947. So he actually lived through both world wars. Hmm. Only served in war, World War One, though. Well. So there you go. Um, the great art heist of the Mona Lisa. I had no idea she was ever stolen. I I did not. I and I assumed it was always like a always famous, famous yeah. nope. work of art. I wonder how many other paintings are out there and how oh. many other works of art that if they were just to be stolen, they'd like triple, quadruple their value. And I wonder, I wonder how, how much- many artists, like, you know, they say that artists with a few exceptions, like Banksy, for example, um, a lot of artists don't get famous until after they're dead. Because then, you know, they're not going to make any more art. So their art becomes more valuable. I wonder how many just relatively obscure artists that nobody knows. I mean, I'm going to be the first to admit that I don't know a lot about art and things like that. So I'm just wondering how many people and what people have in their private collections. And I mean, I'm assuming they I'm assuming they just collect it just to gaze at it like this guy did the Mona Lisa. Yeah. And say, yeah. oh, look, I own. Right. And it's a bragging the- thing too. But then like I, unless you are an, an art person, you're not going to like Degas painted a lot of stuff. He, he painted the water lily or 
I don't know if that was Degas or Monet. See, I'm not an art person either, but like Monet, Degas, they both painted kind of a lot of stuff. Picasso painted a good deal of stuff. He was like more like contemporary guy. He was, but I, not all of his stuff is in a museum. So if somebody had a Picasso hanging in there, like if a rich person had a Picasso hanging in their house, I wouldn't necessarily assume that it was stolen. No, I wouldn't either. Um, maybe like the Mona Lisa. I mean, I'm sure all this. Stolen, I'm sure all these pieces of art have been cataloged, and yeah. people probably know where they are. I mean, I'm sure that every piece that you don't be so sure. We're I, gonna we're gonna get into that later. We are. Oh yeah. Right now? No, later. Oh, okay. on the show. But, okay, but yeah, they're um, the most costly art heist perhaps in history is still unsolved and happened in the 20th century. Hmm. So the latter half of the 20th century. So we'll get into that, but it's your turn. Alrighty. So I didn't do about art because I don't know a lot about it, but I did do one of the more famous bank heist and not that I'm know a lot about bank heist either, but I've seen this movie at least. Oh, so, Okay. I want to apologize right up top because I guarantee you I'm going to drive you crazy because I'm going to interrupt you a whole bunch because I'm sure it's going to be super interesting. So I apologize in advance. Please just get like one eye roll out of the way and then we're good for the rest of the show. Okay. All right. Okay. Here it goes. All right. Ready? I'm ready. There you got it. (laughs) Thank you. So I'm going to be talking about the Baker Street Bank Heist. Ooh. Now the bankers, Baker Street, <laughs> Baker sure? Banks. Okay, this is gonna be a tongue twister for me right now. One of Britain's most infamous. What's the difference between infamous and famous? Infamous is bad. Okay. Like you're famous for a bad reason. So one of Britain's baddest robberies <laughs> occurred in 1971 on Baker Street in London. The now this heist was so widely talked about. That several movies have been made about it. Ooh, like what? Uh, uh, well, one of them's called The Bank Job. So, and I, you know, my memory is so poor. I don't know if that's the one I saw, but it was, I, I don't want to get into that. But that's probably like the most famous one, because I've heard of that one. Pro- probably. Okay. Yeah. So, was this an original idea that these guys had? What do you think? Well, I don't know. I don't know what the, okay. to okay. rob a bank. No, that's okay. not an original oh, idea, okay. but well, I don't know what the heist the, entailed. The, the plot. Okay. Yes. So, what's the plot? So the burglary was planned by a guy named Anthony Gavin, who was a career criminal who claims that he was inspired by the Redheaded League. Have you ever heard of that? I have not. That is a short story by Arthur Conan Doyle. Oh. In which Sherlock, now wait, this gets better, in which Sherlock Holmes waits in a bank vault to arrest a gang who have tunneled through the floor. Oh, I've mm. heard of this. I've heard of this robbery. Okay. Okay. 80, 80 years after this heist happened, on the very same street where Sherlock Holmes resided, the Baker th- this street. bank heist, yeah, Baker thought, Street, this happened there. I thought now, of he course, lived on Downing Street. No, that's... 10 Downing Street. What is that? that that's the... Prime Minister. Oh, okay. The Prime Minister. <laughs> now, of now, of course, Sherlock Holmes is fictional. Yes, he so is. is. Is this a coincidence? No. Okay. So no, he stole no. the idea. <laughs> or he got the idea. St- 
stole it. Got it. They're thieves. Stole. He probably stole he, it. Okay. He stole it. So Gavin, who was a uh, 38-year-old photographer from North London, began planning the burglary of the uh, branch of Lloyd's Bank at 187 Baker Street in the Marybone district of the city of Westminster, London, in 1970. Now, they did the research and they educated themselves. <laughs> they discovered that the bank had a vault full of safe deposit boxes and that the vault's alarm sensors on its floor were being turned off due to uh, nearby road work, construction work Ooh. that was triggering a lot of false alarms. Ooh. So a member of the local security company alerted the gang of the timing of the digging and when the alarms would be turned off. Mm, so, you know, the, so, the, the plot thickens. So it was not just him. It was oh, a gang. It, it, it's a gang. Which, right off the bat, I feel like if you are going to commit a, a large heist or crime with more than, I would say, two people at most, you run the risk of getting caught. Because what do we say about secrets? Some two, Three people can keep a secret if two of them are dead. Yep. So you are already at a high well, risk of getting caught. So let yeah, we'll get into this. And you'll see why one guy couldn't pull this one off. Well, yeah. Okay. So a mem- we just said that a member of the local security company was snitching, and he was alerting them to do that. So he must have had some. He was some in the shady, gang a little yeah, bit. I'm sure that or, he or he was just paid he off. just knew. Yeah, I'm sure he got money. Yeah. For it. So. In May 1971, the owners of the leather goods shop at Le Sac at 189 Baker Street, which is two doors down from the bank, sold the lease for the property for 10,000 pounds to Benjamin Wolf, who was a 64-year-old seller of ornaments and knickknacks and um, a contact of uh, several of the gang members. So mm. the plot thickens and it gets you know, more crowded here. That's really dedicating yourself to a heist, buying, yeah. the, buying the property next door. Well, yeah. So the property had a basement that the group calculated was at about the same level as the bank vault. And get this, it was located only two doors down from the Lloyds of London Baker Street Bank. Oh, that's So it's really convenient. close. Yeah. So work began on the tunnel on uh, Friday evening of August, the uh, bank holiday in London of 1971, and continued until the 10th of September, 1971. So it didn't take them a whole lot of time to dig this tunnel, but no. but I mean, we'll get, we'll get into that. Okay. Now, Gavin was a former Army physical training, physical fitness training instructor oh. with connections to several career criminals. Gavin is described by uh, the journalist Tom Pettifor and Nick Summerlad as a forceful personality who had the personality to be physically threatening. Ooh. According to Paul um, Lashmer, the head of journalism at the University of Sussex, Gavin was a member of a gang headed by Brian Reeder, who was also involved in the burglary. Reeder, although that's what they claim, Reeder firmly denies that he, he had any involvement in the events at Baker Street. Now, of course he does. I mean, it's <laughs> yeah, not no mine. Me, I did it. It's not mine. How many times have we heard that on <laughs> listening, watching <laughs> On Patrol Live? Yeah. It's not mine. It's I don't mine. know. I don't I know wasn't, why that's in my pocket. I know I'm sitting here in the driver's seat, but I wasn't driving. <laughs> you, you must be wrong. Mm-hmm. So anyway, Gavin asked uh, Reg Tucker, who was a secondhand car salesman 
who had no criminal record to case the bank because, you know, he could get in and with no criminal record. So he wasn't like known because I'm sure the bank probably had pictures of him. Don't cash this check or whatever. So Tucker opened an account with 500 pounds in December 1970. And two months later, he rented a safety deposit box in the branch. That's key right there. So over the next few months, he visited his box 13 times. So the bank must have thought, well, he's got something in there that's important. But that's what he did. I wonder why. What bank practice at that time was for staff to leave customers in private while using the vault. Oh. Now, they, they still do this, at least here in the U.S. in any bank I've been to. But maybe now that, in, maybe now because of this in mm-hmm. England, someone's in the bank with you. But as soon as Tucker was alone, he would measure the room using the span of his arms and an umbrella that he would carry in with him. He was also able to get exact measurements by the regularly sized floor tiles. Now, you know, a lot of tiles in here in the United States are 12 inches, so you can kind of calculate like that. So there in the bank vault, the, uh, the tiles were 9 inches or 23 centimeters square. So he went back, he drew a map of the room, a detailed map, laying out where the cabinets were and the positions of the furniture. So pretty clever, right? So far, pretty clever. Thomas Stevens, I mean, they got this all planned out. They really thought this one through. Well, they didn't think of everything. (laughs) Of course, they got caught. Thomas Stevens, another secondhand car salesman with no criminal record, was used to acquire the tools needed for the break-in including a thermal lance and a 100-ton jack. One of Reader's uh, friends, Bobby Mills, was employed to be the lookout man. Mm. Mm. Okay, so... I feel like that's the worst job in a heist. That's where I'd want to be in case the bullets start flying. Anyway, two others were brought in for the job. One of them was an explosive explosives expert who was another one of Gavin's friends and a guy named Mickey Skinny... Gervais, who was a burglar alarm expert and uh, was brought on board as the two men who never, as well as two men who have never been identified. Was Skinny Gervais like really fat? I don't don't know. That would be really funny. And and these two unidentified guys are just known as Little Legs and TH. Oh. Now, Lashmere reports that TH was possibly a contact of Detective Inspector Alec Eist, whom he describes as by reputation, the most corrupt in the yard. We're talking about Scotland Yard. Wow. So apparently this detective this really could have been on the is take. a movie. Yeah, I mean, it, it had to... It sounds like a movie. I mean, it, the plot had to get complicated, but, you know, big risk take... I you know, guess. Big things. Okay, so Gavin led the digging of the tunnel from Lesac to under the vault floor. He later said that he lost two stone, or about 28 pounds, in the process. Gavin dug until he reached the walls of the Chicken Inn's basement, which is the building between the, the Lasac and the bank. Yeah, the, the Chicken Inn's, that's what it was called. <laughs> then they dug down and continued under that building, using that basement floor as the roof of their tunnel. When they tunneled to the spot under the vault, their intention was to use the 100-ton jack to force a hole in the, uh, the three-foot-thick reinforced concrete floor so they laid railway sleepers, you know, they, they laid a base on the uh, on the ground floor underneath, you know, in their tunnel this to support so the jack. Yeah. 
This is so complicated. But what they didn't know, was there, there was an old well under, under um, where the tunnel ended, and the pressure of the jack just <gasps> was pushing the bottom of the tunnel down into the well instead of raising the vault's floor upwards. So Was uh, the well dry? No, it, it it was an old well. I don't know if it was dry, but it oh, wasn't. Oh, so but there wasn't like water coming in everywhere. I I, I don't know. Probably not. I would probably think not. So. It was just, yeah, but the ground wasn't be stable because okay. yeah. Okay. Uh, the gang began their entry into the vault on Friday the tenth of September after the bank closed for the weekend. Oh, it was back to that uh, that in the engineering terms we would call that unforeseen circumstances. Mm. Yeah, you can't you can't plan for that. They're just. Stuff you don't know is going to happen. I think that's it's there. Interesting that so far both of our heists took place in August mm. or like started in August. Okay. The gang then used the uh, the thermo the thermic lance in an attempt to cut through the floor. When this failed, they drilled holes in the other side of the vault floor and packed them with explosives. Now, a lot of pro as an engineer, a lot of problems can be solved with explosives. <laughs> When, when, when doing our demo, demolition calculations, part of our the formula is P equals plenty. But you know you're under the bank, so you don't want to put like hundred pounds under there. A button. A lot of problems can be solved with explosives. Yep. Well, we used to say every every problem has an engineering solution to it. That's right. So here they were going to use explosives to get into banks. Fair so enough. Anyway, the tunnel was cleared of the the debris they created, and the hole was widened with a hammer and chisel. By the time they'd finished, the exit of the tunnel measured 12 inches by 14 inches. So these guys, it's probably a good thing he lost yeah. two stones so he could fit That's through there. Small. I would never fit through there. Okay. So, I don't even know if my head would fit through yeah. something that size. The tunnel was 40 feet long from the Lasac under, under the chicken end <laughs> to the vault. And under the vault... The gang created a seven by four foot by five foot cavity. The, the, the digging created eight long tons of waste, which was hauled back through the tunnel into Lasac and dumped towards the rear of the premises of the Lasac. The tunnel, which needed no supports, was later described in court as a magnificent piece of engineering. Hmm. Yeah. Upon leaving the vault, these guys had to be halfway smart. Yeah. Not smart enough. <laughs> Upon leaving the vault, the Robert there's gonna be more unforeseen circumstances. Oh, no, there here. always is. So upon leaving the vault, the robbers left a, a, a if you could see me, a I'm in quotes, a cheeky message on the wall that read, Let's see how Sherlock Holmes solves this one. Oh, see, so they're getting right they're there. getting a little cocky right now. Right okay? there yeah. is proof that he did not come up with this idea on his own. Yep. But they're, they're, get, they're getting a little bit cocky. Mm -hmm. So unknown to the gang, while all this was going on, on the night of September 11th, around 11 p.m., Robert Rollins, an amateur radio enthusiast, was living in a flat in Wimpole Street about 800 meters away <gasps> from the Lloyds branch and picked up oh, the no. walkie-talkie conversations by the gang Purely by chance, <gasps> by accident. So they were using walkie-talkies to communicate yeah. back and forth. And, you know, he's the look. You know, there's a lookout right. up there. So, okay. So he heard comments over the radio that made him think that a local cigarette shop was being burgled. 
Oh, the, there's so many twists to the story. No wonder it was made in the movies. Oh, my god! At 11.30 p.m., he phoned the police. The local police officer thought it was a prank call and told Rollins that he should record the conversation if anything interesting was overheard. Probably just being a smart aleck. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Well, Rollins thought, well, you know what? This is a good idea. You know, I'm thinking lawn chair, Larry. <laughs> right. <laughs> this cop... You, I wonder, did this cop get fired later? For I, don't, like, I don't know. Not taking it seriously. So, you know, like, wow. So he recorded the conversations yeah, around midnight. He recorded a conversation between the gang inside the shop and the nearby lookout up on the roof about them needing to take a break. So here's the transcription of what was recorded. You know what? I should have. Oh. I should have. I wonder if it's out there, like on YouTube or something. No, it could anyway. be. It was the seventies. It was not long ago. Yeah, I don't know. So the first voice in the transcription, right? Well, listen carefully. We want you to mine for one hour from now until approximately one o'clock, and then to go off the air, get some sleep, and come up on the air with both radios at six o'clock in the morning. Second voice. I suggest we carry on tonight, mate, and get this done with. First voice. Look, the place is filled with fumes where we were, where we was cutting, and if the security come in and smell the fumes, we are all going to take a stopo, and none of us have got nothing. Whereas this way, we all have got three hundred grand to cut up when we get back in the morning, and if security have nosed us, nosed it for us, well, at least we've got something. The disagreement between the lookout and the gang continued for a while, and the lookout said, Money may be your god, but it's nine mine. I'm effing off. <gasps> Eventually, after that, there's input from a woman's voice and a fourth person who seemed to carry more sway than the others. The lookout oh. agreed to, uh, they, they convinced him to remain on the roof overnight. I don't know. They he's already got. I mm, I don't trust this lookout. Uh, yep. So Mills, the lookout man. Well, it it's not his fault. No, but he's already there's dissension among the ranks, and he's like the only one that wants to stop. Well, okay. You see I, what I'm I, I I see your point. Yeah. But, uh, spoiler alert. It's got nothing to do with it. I know, but still, it, it's it's okay. this guy who's uh, recording them. Well, yeah. Okay, okay. So Mills, the lookout man who was giving updates on the progress they had in opening the safe oh de safety deposit boxes. We have done 90% of the easy ones, and now we face the hard ones, was heard. At 2 a.m., Rollins decided that he had enough material recorded to call the police again. This time, though, he didn't call the local police station, but instead oh. he called he called Scotland Yard. He's going straight to the top. Yeah. So Scotland Yard took the uh, took the call seriously and sent members of the Flying Squad to oh. listen to the tapes. They confirmed that they thought a burglary was happening right then and taking place. The officers stayed with Rollins until about 8:30 a.m. on Sunday the 12th of September when the gang returned to the shop and radioed the uh, lookout. Okay, so they, Roland and the cops are sitting there all night. So I wonder who made coffee. The cops are rolling. Oh my gosh. I feel I, like, you know who should have made the coffee? They should have called that stupid officer that he first called and had him bring and in donuts him and coffee. coffee. But you know, they're in, they're in London. So maybe they had tea. 
Oh, probably. probably I bet so. they drink coffee in with, London. With milk. Oh, but they probably do. I'm sure they do. Anyway, one of the gang members in the shop thanked him for staying on the roof all night and informed him that they planned to finish the job early that afternoon. At one stage in the morning, a waiter from the Chicken Inn restaurant <laughs> heard noises from within the bank and peered through the windows of the building to see if he could see anything. Shortly afterwards, Rollins and uh, the listening policeman heard the final radio broadcast. Would you like to change to the other channel? Over. Now, Rollins thinks this was code for they were leaving the bank. Police contacted bank staff and local security firms to open up all their branches as they begin to check the 750 banks in an eight-mile radius. Whoa, that's a lot of banks. Well, there's a lot going on in here. I mean, there's potentially a lot of money. Holy I mean, smokes. the police are probably thinking if they're going to all this trouble, yeah, there, there's a big know, score. Yeah, it's not just like someone's knocking off the liquor store or something right, right there. So they even checked, well, listen to this, they even checked the Baker Street branch of Lloyd's at 3.30 p.m. on the 12th of September. They went in, they found the vault secure, but they were unable to open the vault to check inside because it was locked. Whoa. Now, they're not sure if the gang was still in the vault at that time, although the police suspect that they that they were, <sighs> but being kept quiet following a warning from Mills. I mean, Mills up yeah. on the roof, so he saw him go in and says, stop. Whoa. Uh, yeah. They came so close to getting caught. Police <sighs> found the members of the gang soon after the break-in. One of the burglars, Benjamin Wolf, had signed the lease for Lassac in his own name. What an idiot. Yeah. And informers provided information that led to Gavin. So people are ratting. There's, I don't know if there's rewards. Like I said, you can't have. You can't keep secrets. Yeah. At the end of October 1971, police arrested Wolf, Gavin, Reg, and Tucker, Thomas, and Stevens. They continued to search for uh, other members of the gang including the woman, for five years. Wow. But, but they weren't able to make any other arrest. During the burglary, 268 safety deposit boxes were opened. About a quarter of the boxes of the vault, the gang didn't try to open. Also, they didn't try to crack the bank safe. Lord Halsham, who uh, owned one of the boxes in the bank at the time of the robbery, he was the Lord Chancellor and the most senior member of the judiciary. So... There was, there were important people who had stuff in here. Even I mean, that's yeah. kind of a member of the judiciary. Okay, yeah. Estimates of the amount stolen vary between a hundred and fifty thousand pounds and nearly four million pounds. Whoa, that's okay. a big okay. range. Okay, now it gets complicated. Okay, because of the way the gang communicated the, the burglary, it was soon nicknamed the walkie-talkie job. Although the common name for the events is the Baker Street Robbery. Mm -hmm. During the robbery, a news blackout was imposed by radio messages to avoid letting the burglars know their conversations had been overheard by the police. But this was lifted on Monday the 13th of September. On that morning, bank staff opened the vault and found out that they had been robbed. Police found the uh, the thermal lance, walkie-talkies, and other tools, including an oxyacetylene torch, in the shop, 800 pieces of evidence were logged and uh, forensically examined. Police announced that they were searching for four men and a woman. They thought that during the burglary, the woman was acting as a controller based in a different location to the lookout and the gang. 
The police later widened their search to include five other people. The bank provided the police with the names of 260 box owners. Eight others refused to allow their names to be passed on. Ooh. Up to 120 detectives worked on the case, organized into four teams, one examining the scene, one contacting the known safety box owners, one covering the coordination from the control center, and one team dealing with all the external inquiries. Police soon identified Wolf from the lease documents. Remember, that's the guy that used his own name. Yeah. And with what, you know what? He didn't have a record. So maybe he thought he should just do that. And maybe he had. He to, has one now. Yeah, he's got one now. But, you know, maybe he didn't yeah. have a record. So he thought he should just lease it in his name. Right. Because he probably had to. Credit and all that kind of and, thing. Yeah. And, yeah. I and guess that makes that sense. Stuff. Okay. Whatever. They, they went to this much trouble. They should afford some documents, right? I'd say. Okay. Informers provided the names of the two of the gang members and incomplete details of a pub they had been taken over by another member. Police made the connection between a newly acquired pub and Gavin. There's some detective work. I mean, this is Sherlock Holmes stuff it really going on is. right uh, here. I, I wonder, I kind of want to read that Sherlock Holmes book now and see how he solved it. It's a short story. After several weeks of surveillance and investigation, police identified Wolf, Gavin, Stevens, and Tucker as the key individuals to arrest. But they also wanted to speak to three or four other people who thought were involved. One of these they were interested in had been living in France and Italy since October 1971. Because there was no extradition agreement in, the pl- in place uh, to request overseas police to arrange for the return to Britain, they didn't get to talk to him. Towards the end of October 19, 1971, police surveillance team saw Tucker hand over a bag to two men, Abdullah Hashan Ganji and his nephew, Akbar Mohammed Ali Ganji. The two were arrested and 32,000 pounds of notes were seized. Wolf, Gavin, Stevens, and Tucker were also picked up within the next two days. Police recovered... 231,000 pounds uh, that they identified as stolen from the vault. So now things begin to get messy. So, you know, we talked about complications when you're trying to oh, organize a heist and you now bring in things too many are pe- getting messy. Okay. Okay. I, I mean, and we've heard about this stuff before, like with 9 11, yeah. with other disasters and things like that. Yeah. So in March 1973, 64 of those whose uh, safety deposit boxes had been broken into, sued Lloyd's of London for 500,000 pounds. Each? Each. Whoa. The case opened in the high court in 1977, by which time there were 138 plaintiffs seeking damages of um, 660,000 pounds. Okay, now listen to this. This is where it gets shady. One witness, a retired jeweler, recounted how he identified some of the of his property after the investigation of Scotland Yard. That's not sketchy at yeah. all. Now, he did this while walking around tables on which several items were placed. He and 20 other people were unsupervised while they did this. He no- I told you, it gets sketchy. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. He noticed a single diamond that could easily have been stolen, which he estimated was worth between 3,000 pounds and 4,000 pounds, at the 1971 price, another customer complained that he saw a ring in a waste paper bin, 
but that it was too easy to steal some of the smaller items if one wished, and that one of the bank assistants had told him that two people had tried to claim the same pair of candlesticks. Candlesticks? Apparently some pretty valuable candlesticks. They're candlesticks. Four days after or end of the trial, the judge visited the bank and the rooms where the property had uh, had been on show. The following day, he adjourned the case. No reason was given, and no date was set to resume the proceedings. Ooh. So, I mean, people are just trying to yeah, rip, trying to this rip them is off. Really shady. Yeah. In 1976, James Humphreys, a Soho-based pornographer and strip club <laughs> oh. owner, alleged that. Police officers had stolen one million pounds worth of gems as their share of the burglary. I feel like that everybody is, is a out, thief yeah. in this situation. Like there is nobody that is. At least that, like the actual guys that broke in, were being honest about it. You know yeah. what I mean? Like they're they're working yeah, for tar- their <laughs> targets of opportunity here. I guess so the following year, Commander Bert Wickstead, a senior officer at Scotland Yard, was appointed to head an inquiry. Into the allegations. So. <laughs> everybody <laughs> is thieving. Oh. It's everybody. Just wait. Oh, my gosh. There's more? Hang on. Let me go back and recap the trial. Um, the trial of the four gang members and the two Ganges opened up on the 2nd of January, 1973. Stevens, Tucker, Wolf, and Gavin were charged with breaking into the bank and stealing the contents of the security boxes valued at a minimum of 1.5 million pounds and possession of explosives. The two Ganges were charged with handling stolen goods. Which they did. Which they did. But they claimed they they didn't know and they were just couriers for sent on a job. Stevens, Tucker, and Gavin pleaded guilty. Wolf and the two Ganges pleaded not guilty. The two Ganges stated that they were acting as a courier for a Swiss bank a Swiss-based finance house mm. involved in uh, purchasing sterling. So they, they yeah. Uh, yeah, but it's still kind of, yeah. okay. Wolf claimed that after he signed the lease for Lassac, he had only returned to the shop once to pick up the post and that he was shocked to hear about the news of the break-in. Yeah, of course he was. The trial ended on the 23rd of January, 1973, and sentences were handed down three days later. Gavin Tucker and Stevens were sentenced to 12 years in prison. Wolf received a sentence of just eight years, which was less than the others because he was in his 60s. In 2011, the Baker Street Robbery, a documentary on the burglary, was broadcast on the History Channel. The program included an interview with Robert Rollins and the recordings he made of the robbery. Oh, oh so they are out there. Yeah, I guess so. Uh, well, he an interview about right. the recordings. Oh, I, don't know, okay. I don't know if they are. Uh, did I mention that they considered prosecuting him? Why? For illegally recording and listening to people through the through the his radio. What are you talking illegally they told him to no he was listening to it to he begin with he was listening to it and, but and then the they came over and told s- him to record he was not illegally recording anything well initially he was whatever he should he wasn't supposed to be doing that That's but anyway nonsense. anyway something this big has to have happened for nefarious reasons right 
I mean, they I mean, wanted to get money. I mean, like, we're, no, we're talking conspiracy theory now. Oh, of course yeah. we are. We can't have an hour of your life without Steve's conspiracy theories. So there have been several conspiracies circulating about this burglary. Okay. One of them is that the government issued a D notice. Now, in What's Great that? Britain, that a D notice is a formal request that the media not publish a story on a specific subject for reasons of national security to stop any news from being released. In other words, hush it up because important people could be embarrassed. Oh. Now that's conspiracy theory one. Okay. This claim is dismissed by Duncan Campbell, who writes, no deed notice was ever requested and far less granted. Of course, they could be covering yeah, that who's up. Who's going to, they're not going to say. Yeah, of course not. Okay. Journalist Graham McLagan observes that there was a news embargo on Sunday, like, was, yeah, they, they you said, said there that. was a news blackout. Well, the burglary was still in progress, but the events were widely reported over the following days. Another conspiracy on all this is that one of the safety deposit boxes contained compromising photographs of Princess Margaret and actor and criminal John Benden. Totally believe it. I don't know who that is. John Benden, I don't know who that is, but I totally believe in compromising photos of the royal family. No doubt. Uh, we have quite a few listeners over there. Have you heard We're about We're fans Prince of the Royals. Um, okay. Yeah, okay. Okay, I just saw today where Galene Maxwell said that that, that photograph was uh, faked. That's what she said. Of course she Any, did. Anyway, Campbell describes the story as cheerful nonsense. Cheerful nonsense, okay. A third conspiracy is that the uh, photographs of a conservative cabinet minister abusing children were discovered by the gang and left behind for the police to find, but no action was taken. Whoa. Okay. So although many of the records... This is where the conspiracy comes in, though. Okay. Although many of the records relating to the burglary at the bank were released by the National Archives in 2013, get this, approximately 800 pages of information remained closed that's a lot they will be available for viewing in january 2071 whoa so like long after everybody is dead and has forgotten about this. yeah so why would they need to keep that they didn't even i don't they didn't even keep the ufo stuff doc secret for that long yeah so i mean holy cow they're waiting for someone to die off no kidding yeah okay oh man and and that's that's how conspiracy theories get started I, I mean, mean you, you can understand. You can understand how I this. I totally is. understand why that would be a conspiracy theory. All right, so that is the Baker wow. Street heist. Can you top that one? Um, I don't know if I can top it necessarily, but how how are we doing on time? Uh, we're about at the end of time right now. Okay, so listen, you guys didn't hear us for like the entire summer, so you can just deal with a little bit extra because I'm really excited about these two. Okay, so. Do you, Steve, I know that you always talk about like, he, he loves James Bond and like, you always talk about if I had been in world war two or like, I would have loved to have been a cold war spy or like whatever. Would you like to solve a heist yourself? We've done that. We have. Yes, we did. Pamela got us that game. No, but like a real heist. Clued up. No, to catch him. What was it? To catch a or 
I forget. Oh, no. Whatever it was. No, no, I know, no, 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 no. I know what you're talking Because, about. like, the, the murder of these uh, four college kids. Yes. All these amateur sleuths are really. But there have been cases where amateur sleuths really did help. But, I mean, don't. I would rather read about it. Do not take matters into your own hands with right. murders and things like that. But, okay, so listen. I have two unsolved art heists to talk about. In 2020, now this is a, talk about a crime of opportunity. In 2020, an early Van Gogh piece called the Parsonage Garden at Nguyen in spring. Now there are several of these Parsonage Garden paintings. I think there's four of them, one for each season. The one in spring was displayed at the Singer Lauren Museum in Holland. It was on loan from the Groninger Museum in the Netherlands. And it was their only, there was their only Van Gogh, unfortunately. Now, when the singer Lauren closed, I bet of, you there's a lot of them out there. Now, no one knows about. Well, yeah. When the singer Lauren closed because of COVID. Now, remember, this is 2020. When they closed because of COVID, a person or persons broke the glass in the front door at about 3:15 in the morning on March 30th, 2020, which is Van Gogh's birthday. The break-in tripped an alarm, but the thief or thieves were gone by the time the police got there. In June of 2020, photographs of a painting with a copy of the New York Times dated May 30th, 2020, so like recent, is basically like a proof of life photo, were um, sent to Dutch art detective Arthur Brand, which I kind of feel like this could be like a Knives Out movie. Anyway, side note. The detective suspected that the painting had been sold to Dutch criminals in April 2021 a member of one of these gangs was arrested and later convicted. However, because these criminal organizations move art around so much, he claimed probably rightly that he didn't know where the painting was. As of today, it still hasn't been recovered and it's worth $6.9 million. 6.9 million. Yes. Okay. So if you know where this Van Gogh is, I'm sure that if you get it back to where it belongs, you will be rewarded handsomely. Well, let's start looking. Okay, so that's I, okay. Now, see, that's not like getting people in trouble. No, 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 like no, that. no. That that kind of detective work I could get into. Yeah. Okay. So I have one more. Um, what may be the world's largest art theft, like in the history of the world, aside from you know like the Nazi gold train and like the Napoleonic Wars and all that kind of stuff, like single art theft. Um, is also still unsolved. In the and it's an American one. Um, so this heist happened at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston, Massachusetts. In the early morning hours of March 18, 1990, 23-year-old Rick Abbott heard fire alarms go off in different rooms of the museum, but he couldn't locate any fire or smoke. In the security room where the fire alarm control panel was, Smoke in multiple rooms was indicated, but there, I mean, there was no smoke. So Abbott assumed there was some sort of malfunction and shut down the panel. I think it's kind of important to remember that the guards that we're talking about were young, 23. And then we're going to talk about um, a 25 year old in a minute. So they're, they're young. Um, so Abbott went back on patrol and before he completed his rounds, he made a quick stop at the side entrance, which was the employee entrance of the museum, he briefly opened the side door and then shut it again. That's significant. At 1 a.m., his partner, 25-year-old Randy Heestand, 
who was working his first night shift, started his rounds. At 1.20, two police officers rang the buzzer at the side door because they were tipped off by the alarms, the fire alarms. They were admitted by Abbott. Now, they rang the buzzer at the side door that he had just checked a little bit earlier. The officers asked if anyone else was in the museum and to bring them down, so Abbott radioed Heastand, who was on his patrol. It was about this time that Abbott noticed that the mustache on the taller of the two police officers appeared fake. The mm. shorter man told Abbott that he looked familiar that they may have a warrant for his arrest and that he needed to come out from behind the desk and provide identification. Yeah. Abbott complied, stepping away from the desk where the only panic button to alert the actual police was. Then the shorter man forced Abbott against a wall, spread his legs, and handcuffed him. Abbott noticed that he was not frisked, so obviously this guy is not a cop because, like, he, a cop would have, like, patted him down for weapons. Heaston walked into the room about this time, and the taller thief turned him around and handcuffed him. Once both guards were handcuffed, the thieves revealed their true intentions to rob the museum and asked the guards not to give them any problems. The thieves wrapped duct tape around the heads and eyes of the guards, and then without asking for directions, they led the guards to the basement where they were handcuffed to a steam pipe and workbench. So clearly these two quote-unquote cops knew their way around the museum. They've been casing the place out. They And I mean, it's this is not like the basement is not someplace that where you would normally go if you were like a patron of the museum. So they've been there before. Yeah. So the thieves examined the wallets of the guards and explained that they knew where they lived, not to tell the authorities anything, and that they would get a reward in about a year. It took the thieves less than 15 minutes to subdue these two guys. Now, like I said, they were young, inexperienced. Um, but it was the one guy's I, first night on the job. Like okay, was, that that I can accept. Like that was, yeah. They were. It was. Okay, I mean, so I know I know a lot of eighteen-year-olds that have done yeah. a lot of guard duty. So yeah. So then, after they spent fifteen minutes getting the guards tied up, they spent the next eighty-one minutes stealing about six hundred million dollars worth of art. Hundred million. Six hundred million. They they made two trips to the car, and they left at two forty-five in the morning. After checking to make sure that the guards were comfortable. That was nice of them. That was nice. <laughs> the next shift of guards arrived later in the morning. But remember, we know where you live. Right. The next shift arrived later in the morning and they realized that something was wrong when they could not establish contact with anyone inside to be let in. Yeah, but they're... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. They, the next shift called a security director who, upon entering the building with his keys, found nobody at the watch desk and called the police. The police searched the building until they found the guards still tied up in the basement at 8.15 in the morning. The 13 stolen pieces of art include three Rembrandts and five works by Degas, in addition to a bunch of other stuff. Like, there were 13 pieces. And it took them two trips to the car? Two trips to the car. 81 minutes. The FBI believes that the robbery was planned by a criminal organization... 
because the Boston Mafia was in the midst of an internal gang war during the period. Hmm. Now, I'm not going to go into as much of the conspiracy theories as you did, but the other suspects include famed gangster Whitey Bulger, who is now dead, con man Brian McDevitt, who is also a former... Either like he attempted art thievery before. I'm not sure if he actually did. He has also passed, but um, and even guard Rick Abbott, who was the one who went to the side door and like opened the side door and then closed it again and was the one that shut down all of the alarms and stuff. So he was questioned and he was a suspect. But then the FBI guard who was overseeing the case said that. This is so mean. Said that Rick Abbott was too incompetent to pull off the heist. <laughs> it's kind of adding insult to injury, but anyway. Alrighty. Well. Now this part's really interesting. In 1994, museum director Ann Hawley received an anonymous letter from someone who claimed to be attempting to negotiate a return of the artwork. Now, also, I, I kind of feel like this is a good spot to say that the two guards who were promised a reward by the thieves never got it. <laughs> anyway, so 1984, the museum director got an I wonder if they letter. told the police they were promised that, though. I don't know. I mean, they told somebody, obviously. Um, so the writer of this anonymous letter explained that they were a third-party negotiator. They did not know the identity of the thieves. They explained that the artwork was stolen to reduce a prison sentence. But since the opportunity had passed... There was no longer a motive to keep the artwork and they wanted to negotiate a return, which seems really weird to me, but whatever. The writer explained that the artwork was being held in a, quote, non-common law country under climate-controlled conditions. They wanted immunity for themselves and all others involved and $2.6 million for the return of the artwork, which would be sent to an offshore bank account at the same time the art was handed over. If the museum was interested in negotiating, they should print a coded message in the Boston Globe. Okay, this reminds me of, I'm thinking Indiana Jones stuff. Yeah. It belongs in a museum. It, yeah, right? <laughs> to establish credence, the writer conveyed information known only by the museum and the FBI at the time. So, What color was the duct tape right. they taped these guys up with? Right, so... Um, now, Holly, the museum director, felt like this was a really strong lead. So she contacted the FBI, who then contacted the Boston Globe, and the coded message was printed on May 1st, 1994. So if you have a May 1st, 1994 edition of the Boston Globe, you should probably get it out. Um, Holly received a second letter a few days later in which the writer acknowledged that the museum was interested in negotiating, but... The writer had become fearful of what they perceived was a massive investigation by federal and state authorities to determine their identity. The writer huh. explained that they needed time to evaluate their options, and then Holly never heard from them again. Now, this person um, asked for $2.6 million in return for all of the artwork. The Gardner Museum is actually offering $10 million dollars for information leading directly to the safe return of the works. Well, you said it was worth $660 million. It is worth $600 million. $600 so, million. Yeah, but the person, this writer, only wanted $2.6 million. They're actually offering $10 million. So, like, they could have gotten way more, but they yeah, didn't well, ask for more. You know what so. I, would do, I would just say, look what I found. 
Yeah. And collect 10 million. Right. Well, I'm sure it's not that easy, but um, so $10 million reward. I bet there's some trickery involved here. Oh, I'm sure. $10 million reward for information leading directly to the safe return of the works and a separate reward of $100,000 is being offered for the return of a gold eagle finial, which is the thing that goes on top of like a flag staff mm-hmm. thing. Um, it belonged to the first regiment of grenadiers of fo- the first regiment of grenadiers of foot of Napoleon's Imperial Guard in 1813, 1814. Hmm. So it's something from the, it's like a gold eagle that was, belonged to Napoleon's army. Um, The Gardner Museum keeps empty frames in the places where the pieces once hung as a token, both of remembrance and dedication to their eventual return. And if you go to their website, you can see the pieces and like you can read, they're very open about it. Um, So if you go to, the Isabella Stewart Gardner website, you can you can learn more about it. So well, there you go. Died. Some crazy heists and in, in not too distant history. I no, mean the one was pretty... 1911, but some of those other ones are pretty recent. Yeah, some of those people are still alive. Uh yeah. <laughs> and if you want 10 million dollars, there's 13 pieces of art out there that are just waiting to be claimed. Well, Kim has been TikToking this live. I have. <laughs> and if those people, whoever's watching, man, it was, it took a lot of. Uh, uh, yeah, they probably, I, at one point we had like six people. I, I think, don't think we have anybody anymore, but. I, I, I was nervous with TikToking. Why? I don't know, but that's why I. I oh, is that I'm, why you had to keep stopping? Why, okay, yeah. we won't TikTok live anymore then if it makes you nervous. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. It's fine. Hi, All TikTok. Right. Anyway. All right. So that's it for this week. All right. Anything else? How do people get hold of us? Oh my if gosh, they want there's to? so many ways. Speaking of TikTok, I have um a TikTok that I post on our website, which is an hour of your You can find this week's I bet you've lost five hundred listeners after tonight. Why? Because I mentioned TikTok? No, because they saw how we did this. No, because they saw how you did it and how awesome I was. Just kidding. I'm kidding. That was a joke for legal reasons. Anyway. Um, no, not for, Never mind. <laughs> anyway. Um, legal? Oh, I mean, they're always listening. Anyway, oh. so we have a website, <laughs> anhourofyourlife.com. And on that website, you can find the latest episode. You can find pictures from previous episodes. You can find a how to do a podcast page. That is Steve's page. And you can find a page that is called a minute of your life, which is my TikTok. So basically on my TikTok, um, I do three a week of just I pick a random topic and do a minute on some random topic that is semi-educational, like what we do on the show. But it's only a minute long and they change every week. All right. So like Kim said, we took a little bit of a break over the summer and we explained why we had to do that. Mm-hmm. So do us a favor, share this with your friends, talk it up and, you Give know. Give us a good review, yeah, like and subscribe. I'm seeing the numbers climb back cetera, up. They're not where it was, but just, you know, share it with us if you like it. Give us give us some ratings on uh, Apple Music or wherever we can found all the platforms. Yep. So if you have any show ideas, we also have um, an email, a lost hour at gmail.com. Uh, we also have Instagram and Facebook, which we are not as 
good at checking as we probably should be. Um, but definitely drop us a line through email. Um, you can also get drop us a line through the webpage. We would love to hear ideas for our future shows. Um, so if you have any episode or any ideas for episodes, just let us know. All right. Anything else? I think that's it. Okay. So from our studio in snowy Sugar Creek Township. <laughs> Thanks for spending an hour of your life with us. Sources for this week's episode include good old Wikipedia, NPR, the History Channel, Smithsonian Magazine, the Art Crime Podcast, and the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum.